Hello, friends. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again. I'm so, so sorry for this extended, unannounced break that we took. It was absolutely not on purpose. We, and mostly I, Jillian, got very overwhelmed. Just COVID online university got got the best of me. It really, it really did. So, so sorry about this. We recorded this episode way back in October and we meant to release it then. And so it is about things relating to fall, which it no longer is. It's now the new year. So I'm going to suggest that you listen to this and listen to what uh, Chelsea has to say and maybe think about it as a new year's resolution of something that you can maybe apply this coming spring and summer and fall. So thank you so much for joining us again. I'm so sorry and happy new year. podcast about all things anthropology and archaeology for the people. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. And today, because it's fall, and we are fall, I don't have any good jokes about that, Uh, because it's fall, we are going to be talking about some agricultural techniques, because why not, I guess, you know? Of course, first of all, I'm going to start with one of my jokes, and today it is not an archaeology specific joke. Because it doesn't have to be. So, <laughs> what? New rule. <laughs> um, which one of these is the best? Okay. How do you harvest crops in the winter? Uh, I don't know. Wait, it's got to be like a icicle. Yeah, yeah. Is it? Is it that? What is yeah, it? With an icicle. <laughs> you got it. Okay. Yay! All right. Wow, Kelsey. <laughs> I'm so impressed. I said Icico because I was like, it's a... Never oh. mind. So it wasn't quite the same. Sorry. Where did you get that? I don't know. In my head, it was like, this makes, like... Never mind. Okay, I have other ones since you got that one so easily. Um, what did the Italian farmer say after the particularly long and difficult harvest? This Italian sounds dirty, farmer. Jill. <laughs> What did he say? (laughs) I have a migraine. (laughs) Sorry, what? Just I have a migraine. Yeah, because it's still did the Italian like pinch finger. (laughs) I have a migraine. (laughs) Because it's like migraine. Bad jokes with Jeff, and it's just like bad jokes with Jeff. Yes. Okay, bad jokes with Jeff is amazing. It's actually. And so are bad jokes with Jill. (laughs) Amazing. Okay. 
I, I mean, okay, I do have one more that I might not include, but <laughs> it's in a story form. Okay. A cow stumbled <laughs> upon a marijuana field about to get harvested. It quickly turned into a high stake situation. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah, Yeah, I like it. Those are about all the are the all the harvesting jokes I found for you. So you're welcome. Amazing. That was Um, well done. Yeah, my life has changed as a result of having heard those. I appreciate this revolution. You're welcome. Um, So, with that all being said, let's get into this episode. Let's talk about some agriculture, baby. What's what's hip hop happening? What's in the fields? You know, (laughs) literal fields. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of archaeology, how we can see harvests and agriculture in the archaeological record, a little bit about our perceptions, and uh, maybe some colonial perceptions of what we define as agriculture and a little special guest talk with our friend Chelsea Klinka who's going to teach us a little bit more about urban agriculture. How cool. I'm yeah. so excited for today. It's very exciting. So yeah, how do we find like agriculture, agricultural practices in the archaeological record? Archaeology, baby. Uh, so, <laughs> how do we see archaeology through archaeology? Archaeology. archaeology. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, there's lots of ways that we can do this. Let's go with paleoethnobotany, which just means let's break down that word. So paleo means old. Oh, I don't know what ethno <laughs> means. And botany means plants. <laughs> oh, ethnographic. So uh, related to people. Yeah. Yeah. Related to yeah. people, right? Okay. So paleoethnobotany would be the old study of people and plants. Perfect. That makes so much sense. Yeah. So ethno being people, botany being plants. And you can look at it through looking at macro fossils and then also microscopic remains. So that's basically... When you want to look at dirt and you want to figure out what plants used to grow in that dirt, you would take a sample of that dirt and look at it under a microscope. And if you're looking at it under a microscope and you're kind of looking at the macro fossils, macro just means like they're big enough that you can actually see them with the human eye, but they'd also become that much more visible and therefore identifiable under a microscope. That's things like seeds. So if you were looking at dirt and you found something like a chokecherry seed, you're like, oh, hey. Choke cherries probably grew here, or Saskatoon berries, or cherries, anything like that. Very um, cool. Yeah, you also have phytoliths, and those are like very microscopic, and they're basically just like the skeleton of plants. It's the uh, it's the silica, so it doesn't break down because plants are organic, so it's really hard to study them in the archaeological record because they break down. So for a long time in archaeology, we really struggled to try to learn about plants in the archaeological record because obviously they deteriorate, there's nothing left to find, so how do we overcome that barrier? And one of the big revolutions in that study was the identification of phytoliths, which are very, very, very tiny, very microscopic. You need a super powerful microscope to be able to see them, but they're basically like the little silica outlines of the cells of certain parts of plants that therefore remain in the archaeological record because they're made of silica, which is an inorganic material, like a rock. And then you can find them under a microscope. If you get really good, you can identify them. And then you can figure out what plants were growing there. So that's how we figure out like what people were eating over time sometimes. And then how it changes over time. Because if you take a chunk of soil from up higher, it's going to be more recent. 
or a bit of soil from lower. And then if you look at the plants that were growing in the lower soil, you can assume, and how that changed with the upper soil, you can assume a change through time, what plants were growing there, which ones were being harvested and used. Yeah, and you can also look at different quote unquote areas of archeology. span So you can look at ceramics and you can do analysis on the ceramics and figure out what type of grains they were had in there, et cetera or looking at lithics, which are stone tools, you can see that they had sickles, for example, or specific types of tools that they were using for grain or whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the sort of general way. And so uh, an example that I sort of wanted to talk about is using archaeobotany. And this is a study that they did in Clermont-Ferrand Basin in France, which I got excited about because I actually went and visited this area. I think it was in between grade like nine and 10. I did a, uh, an exchange and I lived with a family there. It's a lovely, lovely area. Very fertile and beautiful. But so anyway, these, this was from, who is this? Oh, Cabani et al. from 2015. And so they were looking at 10 different Latin sites from, it's about a 50 kilometer radius around the town of Clermont-Ferrand. And it's all within a, a plain that was sculpted by the Allier River. And people have lived in this area since the Neolithic. And it is great because it has really fertile black soils. And so what they were looking at was using archaeobotany to try to focus on the crop and crop cultivation methods in this area because they already knew through archaeology that the agriculture in this area had sort of changed, but they just wanted to look at the botany specifically to be able to really see what was happening. And the Latin period of occupation is really well documented and it's pretty fairly known. It's kind of the fifth to second centuries uh, before Common Era. And so in the fourth and fifth centuries before Common Era BCE, there were really scattered settlements that were situated in an already deforested open landscape. And then during the third and second centuries of BCE, there was more intense agriculture and a well-defined field system and extensive ditched drainage systems. And this was probably a result of rising population density and an increase of socioeconomic, I hate this term, but complexity. And then the uh, the archaeological evidence suggests a shift from self-sufficient or subsistence economy to a more industrial economy uh, during the late Iron Age. And this is shown by systematic organization of agricultural landscape with like a big field system covering the Grand Limagne plain which is the area that we're talking about and so what they were specifically doing the authors is they they were looking at the botanical evidence of grains pulses which i don't actually know what pulses are it's a type of plant obviously (laughs) but um anyway and and then fruit and seeing how the different amounts of these change throughout this this time period and wanting to determine if those change the changes that they saw already in the archaeological evidence were also reflected in that in their arable farming. I want to call it arable, but it's, I think it's arable farming. Arable farming, yeah. Yeah, and so arable farming means that only crops were grown on a farm and then used or sold by a farmer according to their need. Mm. So anyway, what they found is that 
it showed much more diverse crops earlier on in the 4th and 5th century BCE and then more crops specialization in the 2nd century BCE and that control what they decided is that the control of agricultural techniques and increased yields during this time quote unquote allowed farmers to move towards more monocultural specialized uh, range of crop plants instead of having such a diverse polycultural crops and just another interesting little tidbit but the strawberry tree they found it was imported from southern areas during the late second century bce likely and they also determined that an increase of fruit consumption in the late latin was might have been because of it's like an early sign of contact with roman culture but i just i found that phrase particularly interesting uh that that it allowed farmers to move towards a more distinct specialized range of crop plants because i do think that is a very certain way of looking at agriculture Mm. that isn't necessarily the case like that was europe but that's not the case everywhere Mm -hmm. so we'll talk about that a little bit more later but i also just wanted to talk quickly about like a specific type of agricultural practice that I hadn't actually heard about before that is more widespread. And then we can talk a little bit more about specific ones used in specific places. And so this one is called lithic mulch agriculture, <laughs> LMA, and uh, not LMAO, that's uh, different. <laughs> um, so lithic mulch agriculture was an agricultural strategy using lithic materials and again lithic means stone as a mulch for improving crop growth and it can increase soil moisture (laughs) reduce erosion (laughs) increase average soil temperature and moderate extreme temperature differences throughout the day and it can increase crop biomass and crop yield and so in a lithic mulch field the roots of plants would grow under a surface layer of stone or gravel and this is something that's still used today. Like, I was looking up how to save my ficus that isn't doing very well. And it was, I found advice to mix in some sort of ground up rocks. Because it can really increase the, the moisture and how, it, how well it holds on to that moisture. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of an interesting agricultural practice because it was used in a lot of different places. And it was used for more than a thousand years. And also this is a bit older, the article... So I'm I'm not totally sure what the actual research is like today, but it was used for more than a thousand years in places such as Israeli Negev, Roman Italy, slash the Mediterranean, Peruvian Atacama, Northwest Argentina, Northern and Southern Arizona, Northern New Mexico, New Zealand, the Canary Islands, and Central China. All these different places. And this technique was like uniquely adapted to site-specific environments, but it propped up <laughs> in... <laughs> very specific sites and it wasn't used for very long (laughs) yeah so anyway that was kind of just an interesting one because it's just more general i think and it's seen in many different places a place that an example of it was in maori new zealand more than 400 hectares of gravel mulch fields were found at scattered locations on both north and south islands and these were used by indigenous Maori sometime between the period of 1200 to 1800 in the common era and it was mostly used to grow kumara or sweet potato and possibly maize and then another part of this is that the Maori would also burn tea trees which are rich in phosphates potash and lime and other woods and vegetable matter on a surface of gravel 
before working the ashes into the underlying soil. And so these are sort of like, it's an example of sort of two different agricultural practices being used with the burning and the lithic mulch. And I just thought that was kind of interesting as a more general example. And then we can sort of talk about the way that we view agriculture today in especially North America is very different than what agriculture is generally (laughs) yeah i was thinking a lot about that when we were coming up with the topic of this episode and i just realized like it's fall right now and of course thinking when i picture fall time and harvest i of course get the very classic image of the like that harvest horn you know with all the oh the cornucopia the (laughs) cornucopia with all the surplus of food there and the pilgrims and all this sort of colonial history and sort of when I picture agriculture, that term in my mind, I really think firstly of those colonial sort of structures of what we envision agriculture to be in a Western European sense of the farmer's fields that we've tilled and you have huge swaths of monocrop, a lot of the same thing. And that's, of course, what we sort of envision in archaeology to be that change from you know the hunter-gatherer sort of model transitioning to a more farmer or agriculture and that transition from sedentary or nomadic to more sedentary as people came to adapt agriculture on a more wide-scale range and it's for some reason perceived to be sort of a better I guess model um just in our whole progressive narrative of this world that we currently live in but Um, To me, it's, well, as we're learning and as we'll hear from Chelsea a bit later, that's not the case. This is maybe not the most sustainable model to be following. So I started thinking a little bit more about what agriculture and what harvests and what food management, land management would have been like in North America kind of before European contact and sort of what sort of agriculture were people practicing throughout Canada and throughout North America before European contact and what are some of those other ideas of agriculture and harvest that we could conceive of and it reminded me of when I was working at Lakehead University in northern Ontario and I was we were actually just having a conversation about applying for graduate school and one of the projects that I had wanted to potentially do as a master's was looking at these garden island sites in northwestern Ontario and I thought it was a really interesting and kind of unique question because this research project was looking at the historic transition in a pretty relatively underrepresented aspect in archaeology, which is, you know, the subarctic boreal forest, especially in northwestern Ontario. It's pretty uh, research remote, isolated. And a lot of the people up there, the Ojibwe and Anishinaabe peoples, discussed at the, um, with the arrival of the Europeans, and the Europeans witnessed it, that they had these uh, garden islands that they were actually harvesting and maintaining. And a lot of the European settlers stated that this was a you know, obviously a result of the fur trade and their interactions with Europeans. But my supervisor at Lakehead University, Matthew Boyd, actually wanted to study whether this was in fact just a result of European interaction or whether this sort of idea of these garden islands on Lake of the Woods, so there's a lot of lakes in northwestern Ontario, Lake of the Woods being one of the largest, and it has hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of islands throughout it. And he wanted to explore if this was a longer term process where actually... Indigenous peoples in the area were using these gardens to plant their crops and they were using um, prescribed fire burns to help manage the crops and then having them on the island helped protect them from obviously deer populations and other predators from scavenging 
those goods themselves so the humans could then, you know, reap more of the benefits of their work and kind of keep it kept it a little more maintained and controlled on these islands. And especially with the prescribed burns, you know, you could burn an island and you didn't have to worry about it necessarily traveling to uh, harm a larger area. So it was potentially one way of sort of controlling, but that's not exactly what we would conceive in our mind of what a traditional agricultural field might look like, right? Like you wouldn't necessarily picture it as this island in the middle of a complex lake system, but that's potentially what it could have looked like pre-contact. And that's some of what we have uh, for the evidence from European contact. And I think Lulu will talk a little bit more about that later. Um, and another group that was in pre-contact North America that um, is still being practiced in the area today is in what's now uh, modern day Mexico Valley, but uh, was inhabited pre-contact by the Aztec peoples. And they actually had a really interesting system of agriculture. I believe I touched on it a little bit earlier. What episode was that? I think I talked about Aztecs in one of the episodes, didn't I? Yes. I don't remember which one. (laughs) But yeah, so the Aztecs had a really cool method of agriculture because they also had really wetland environments. There was a lot of lakes. So they built something called, and I might butcher this pronunciation, chinampa. So chinampa is a technique of agriculture used in Mesoamerica basically where shallow lake beds were used for fertile areas because there wasn't a lot of fertile land that you could actually plant and harvest in. How they would do it is they would basically take a bunch of branches and sticks and logs and interlace them to sort of make like a floating, I don't even know, like raft, I guess you could compare it to. And then on top of that, they would actually put the soil, the mulch, the compost, all the necessary ingredients you would need to then grow plants and they would grow on top of that. So they would sort of have these like floating garden island beds, different than the Northwestern Ontario ones because those ones would have been stagnant, but you sort of had these um, garden beds and that took away from the need to then, so you don't have to rely as much on building huge infrastructure for irrigation or for dewatering an area because you'd have the water right there, the roots can actually like, you know, penetrate through and go directly to that water source and then you have an awesome food system. And because uh, Mexico City was actually built on the ancient Lake Texcoco, so you had the major city population able to be reliant on these floating gardens that were in such close proximity to them. So you basically had like the agriculture right next to the city and a good production of food. So I thought that was like a pretty unique method of agriculture that was pretty sustained. It's like hydroponics. It is, exactly, like ancient hydroponics. And apparently, as of 1998, it was still being practiced in Mexico. So there is modern chinampas, and they've been known to grow crops uh, such as cauliflower, celery, mint chives, rosemary, corn, radishes, cilantro, lettuce, all that sort of things. And even in more recent times, they've been used for uh, growing cow feed for some, uh, for feeding other horticulture. (laughs) Um, So yeah. That is a, another example. And the third one I want to talk about that's another one that's a little different than what we would sort of perceive as traditional agriculture in sort of the colonial sense of the word is something called clam gardens on the west coast of North America. So this is now modern day British Columbia. But the indigenous peoples in that area had a really amazing system of maintaining this horticultural landscape they managed. And it was basically where you would 
create artificially a sort of interstitial tidal area. And through this modification of the landscape to create this artificial tidal area, you could actually cause through your action and your maintenance of the landscape, the perfect environment for clams to really flourish and to thrive. So by changing that landscape, indigenous peoples in that area for thousands of years were able to cultivate really successful crops, which we can see archaeologically through something called shell mittens, which are basically just like stacked piles of the refuse or like the shells that after people crack them open and eat what's inside, they toss the shells away. And when you have people doing this over thousands of years, you can get pretty big piles of shell. And I think sometimes even like single feasting events can create huge middens, but that's something we can see archaeologically that's evidence of this really awesome agricultural practice of actually terracing coastal areas and creating these wetland environments and helping to sort of manage and maintain yeah you're managing and maintaining the landscape to create that situation to then benefit from which is basically agriculture right like you're Mm -hmm. planting that seed you're allowing that thing to flourish same thing with the clams so sort of people were doing forms of what I I don't know I would define as agriculture and horticulture pre-European contact it's just not exactly as we would define it in our colonial definition of the term and what we now perceive to be the quote-unquote only way to do agriculture but we'll see that there's a lot of different ways to do it historically and today uh, yeah yeah that's fascinating it's also okay it's also <laughs> interesting because even in Europe like hunter gatherers we know that they would like also facilitate and take care of the things they were gathering like the 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 plants i guess they're not crops because they're not growing them but like really what's the difference between you knowing that a plant is somewhere and making sure that it keeps growing well f- enough for you to keep getting food from there and like you know setting up rows and just planting seeds to you know Absolutely. Well, and that's just that larger conversation about like pristine environments that we talk about where from a very colonial view, it's just, oh, yeah, like uh, there's nobody here or the people that were here, they just lived here, you know, and no, it's people are constantly changing the environment that they live in. And you see that in Canada, you see that in Europe, you see that everywhere. And like Canada is a really actually interesting example of it well north america i guess because we can see that even as the glaciers were retreating as people were in the area they were changing the environment literally from the time that it could have been been quote unquote pristine you know what i mean mm-hmm. with burning and and specifically choosing the crops that they wanted to or cereals for example that they wanted to really cultivate and same with like the domestication of wheat i don't people weren't actually <laughs> only growing wheat but they were choosing the ones that had the thicker rachis 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 whatever it's called the thing that you eat Mm -hmm. and and slowly choosing that over the time that's all it's all part of this right it's all same yeah same with maize and like corn they were doing that in yeah central south america and even like we have this whole preconception of quote-unquote native plants to an area it's like oh this is what was growing here pre-contact but Who's to say that people weren't like transporting those long distances and weren't already intentionally growing those crops in that area? Like there's a lot of um, indigenous quinopodium, like a quinoa sort of crop in uh, northwestern Ontario. Like who's to say that's quote unquote native to the area and people didn't just bring it up there because, hey, it grows really well and it's an excellent food staple. Like why wouldn't you? 
And even like, yeah, maintaining and harvesting the land, I don't see what a huge difference between planting rows of seeds as compared to returning to your Saskatoon bushes that you've been trimming and maintaining for potentially generations. Like, I don't, that's not much of a difference in how you are monitoring, maintaining, taking care of the land for the same, to reap the benefits of that, of what you put into it. Like, I think that's the same, just how we define it so arbitrarily seems very, uh, yeah. very exclusionary. On that note, speaking of corn, <laughs> I wanted to talk about the Iroquois because um, just like you said, in, in in Central America, they had corn. They also had corn up by the Great Lakes where the Iroquois lived. And if, if people don't know who the Iroquois I guess the Iroquois Confederation or the Haudenosaunee peoples. They're, uh, I think, six separate groups of indigenous peoples, but they had a confederation where they all worked together for specific things and had um, kind of a political connection to each other. But they, they were also observed, like, I guess, ethnographically in, like, the 18th or 19th centuries. And their policies and ways of governing were used in the United States system of poli- like of government. So that's really cool. They definitely did it way better than the United States is doing it right now. But there's a lot Burn. in the colonial record. <laughs> Ooh. I mean, is it really? No, it's... it's is like, anyone going to be like, no, United is States burning. is doing great right now. <laughs> it's terrible. Anyway. So... Yeah, they're in the colonial record. There's a lot written about them. The earliest record is by Jacques Cartier. And if you're Canadian, you definitely know about him. He was in contact with them in the 16th century, and he recorded information about their communities near the St. Lawrence River. There was also lots of other dudes that recorded information about them in the 17th and 18th centuries. Missionaries, military guys, traders, etc. Any other white dude that might have been around. (laughs) And a lot of the information is very fragmented because it was just them writing whatever it was of note to them. And a lot of it is probably incorrect. So we have to take it all with a little bit of of grain of salt because these weren't people that spent a lot of time with them probably or really understood what they were looking at a lot of the time but Jacques Cartier has a little quote that I found where he was talking about the Iroquois people so Jacques Cartier said it was fine land and with large fields covered with the corn of the country they live on this as we do wheat they have also considerable quantity of melons cucumbers pumpkins peas and beans of various colors unlike our own so This was obviously of interest to Europeans because they also, I'm pretty sure, just assumed that nobody in North America was growing anything, Um, (laughs) which is also kind of a a myth, I think, that exists until today. Like, I feel like there's this colonial kind of narrative that everything here was so different from what it was like in Europe and nobody had settlements and there was basically quote-unquote nothing here and that kind of gave them an excuse to take over uh and that's they used still, it as an excuse for sure it's still kind of perpetuated today like I feel like there's a lot about these cultures that we don't really even learn about in school because it kind of still gives the excuse of us being here but so the things that Europeans noted that were different from European ways of agriculture in the Iroquois techniques I guess was that first of all they had maize as like the the major crop that they used and that was a grain that didn't exist in Europe and they also had no domesticated livestock to help plow the fields 
quote-unquote, which they also didn't use fields. But also that women were the ones that controlled the agricultural like work. Whereas in Europe, traditionally, it's men that would be the ones out uh, in the field, like tilling the so- soil, planting and harvesting. And they also noted that they often grew corn and beans planted together and this is because the beans would actually climb up the corn stalks and it would give them support and then they also planted squash in the same soil because the squash produces nitrogen in the soil and nitrogen is important for maize growth so anyway so this was this is the three sister system that we we know about now And there's also, like, legends within the Iroquois, I guess, canon that... I think we should be careful about using the term Iroquois, because I'm pretty sure that is the colonial name that was given to them, whereas Odinosine is their own name. Oh, okay. I could do that. Cool. Should I start from the beginning? (laughs) Just say Odinosine from now on. The, The Haudenosaunee also believed that the three vegetables were guarded by inseparable spirits and that the plants could not thrive if they were not planted together. And they would also, instead of planting them in fields, they would be planted on little like mounds or hills. And yeah, so the the three plants really worked together and helped their crop yields be larger than they would be otherwise, allegedly. So anyway, this is all like colonial writings, right? So there's no there's no actual data on whether this actually works or not. So what happened is there was some experimental archaeology or ethnobotany, I guess, that was done in the same area where the Haudenosaunee had been growing their crops around the Great Lakes. And through that research, they found that it did incre- it did indeed increase crop yield over just like mono monoculture mm-hmm. over just the monoculture of just only planting corn or only planting beans or only planting squash cool. and it yeah so i love that it's also interesting yeah. to me that like all these foods that are like native to north or north and south america i guess are all the foods that we associate with like thanksgiving which is a very like colonial holiday mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's i feel like we've appropriated a lot of these foods as like foods that Set pioneer yeah like yeah. settler foods when those were traditional indigenous supplements or like that was their and they've been eating them forever yeah they're like not supplement they're main staple um, staples staple. that's staple, the yeah. word <laughs> yeah <laughs> when that was their staple yeah. yeah yeah i also i have a little like anecdote <laughs> it's kind of silly but so potatoes come from the americas as well most like most food that you think of good as good food honestly comes from the americas um potatoes pumpkin squash cucumbers like anyway pretty much anything oh tomatoes tomatoes also came from north america thank you indigenous people of north america we owe you so much (laughs) too much she didn't even start scratching the surface on that yeah (laughs) anyway also like a lot of i learned recently that a lot of like italian cuisine couldn't even exist if we hadn't come to the americas because a lot of it is based in crop that are grown here um Hmm. so thank you the americas for like is it really italian now because (laughs) we got italian food from here basically i have a migraine (laughs) there we go so the story the story is there is this very british man named sir walter riley and his 
a big thing was tobacco, but also he was one of the first people to try colonize the Americas, and he came across potatoes. Sorry, yeah, sorry. sorry, who? What? <laughs> Sir Walter Riley. Uh, he was Brit- he was a very British man. He's um, the first person to try to colonize the Americas. He's he's among the first people. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So he he was trying to create colonies in like the Americas for England, and he came across potatoes, and he brought them back as a gift for Queen Elizabeth I. So he also wanted to be in in favor of Queen Elizabeth I. He was he was kind of one of her like favorite guys, and he brought back all these potatoes, and they made a grand feast where they invited a bunch of nobility and they were going to feed them potatoes and the cooks had never seen a potato before so they didn't know how to cook it so they threw away the tuber like the actual potato and they just made all of these dishes like several courses of potato but just with the like leaves which are poisonous and they got fed to the British aristocracy and they all got really sick so uh, potatoes were banned from <laughs> Queen Elizabeth the first I guess dinners from then on huh. that's so that's my potato you. story <laughs> that's interesting because I always just associate potatoes maybe because like the Irish potato famine mm-hmm. with the UK though I always are like just I don't know England and what's the right term because Ireland's not part of the UK is it Northern Ireland is Oh, okay yeah so it always just like so is ingrained in my head as something that's like the uk that i wouldn't even think that they were a north american that they were introduced so much later to wow that's yeah. fascinating they stole the potatoes too i also heard there's like 200 types of potatoes in south america or something like there's a there's lot big potato energy <laughs> interesting interesting yeah I think the whole, like, monocrop thing will tie well into, like, what Chelsea talks about a little bit, too, because oh, both good. the... Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a person that loves plants. I have a lot of plants, as you two can see in my apartment. <laughs> that doesn't even scratch the surface, just the one corner. There's so many. She'll um, give us a plant tour once. <laughs> I love my plants. But I often think about how I'm just not that good at it like i i can i can keep plants alive fairly well but i just and then i like especially being in archaeology and talking about it like this stuff it just makes me think about people throughout history uh, just having this intrinsic relationship to nature and and we we have this very interesting division that we like to make between human and nature and even the use of like the word artificial when it's human made like when you were talking about the the clam beds yeah yeah clam beds it's like that kind of points out that you know it's artificial it's human made it's away from nature it's not natural and so yeah this relationship that colonial people like i'm saying this for myself have with nature and plants is just so different I think. And again, I mean, I'm saying this from my point of view. I I don't really know. I can't understand really a different point of view because I don't live it. However, yeah, I often just think about how, yeah, I've got like, what, I don't know, 50 plants in my apartment, but that's not the same as living in an environment and constantly reacting to it and have it react to you, you know? Mm -hmm. And it'd be like dependent on your source of survival. Like that's props to all of everyone's ancestors for making it through. But yeah, like, 
in the Western world in the 21st century, we feel such a disconnect from our food systems. Like I gardened for the first time on my own this summer and like starting from thing, something from seed and then actually reaping the benefits and eating it however many months later, I was like, this was so much work, but man, this is the best zucchini I've ever eaten. But it gives you so much more of an appreciation for, yeah, like that zucchini I now pick up at the grocery store every other time. I'm going to look at it and be like, wow, mm-hmm. so much time and effort and investment went into this versus now when I just go to the grocery store, I don't even think about it. I just have such a disconnect and no respect or appreciation for how much time and labor and investment and care went into that plant going from seed to grocery store. Like Something on your table, yeah. Yeah, so many steps that go into that. And until you actually do it yourself, you don't have that appreciation of how people did it for thousands Millennia. of years living leading up to this moment that we can now have the ability to walk into a grocery store and buy avocados from Mexico. Like, what a cool yeah. world. Yeah. But And also just the yeah. fact that we have access to, like, literally any kind of food at any time of the year, yeah. which we never think about, but... No one else in human history, unless you were yeah. super privileged, would have had that. And now, like, I mean, it's still a level of privilege, privilege to be able to... Yeah. Privilege to have that access. But yeah, it's much more common in the globalized world to... Yeah. Yeah, food systems are... Baffling. I also think about how... <laughs> the number of steps that we had to go through of I mean you're talking about the potatoes and the way that they cook the potatoes like how many people had to eat like humans are so determined and stubborn and how many people had to eat something poisonous and die from it or just feel very sick from it and then try like there are so many types of food I can't think of a specific example right now but there's so many types of food that if you don't prepare it exactly the right way you mm-hmm. will die from eating it. And people live off of these things and they're like a main food source. Or even just like eating the leaves, getting sick of, from them and then being like, maybe the, the root won't make leaves. <laughs> Let's try, Let's the try root this now. part. <laughs> yeah, the trial and error. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It, it is, humans are fascinating. People are strange. So strange. Even in Belize, I remember like one of the guys coming up to me and offering me brie for the first time, which if you've never had it, I hadn't until that point. It's like a giant pea pod that they crack open and then it basically it looks like cobwebs all inside. And I, they're like, you eat this stuff, you eat the like cobweb stuff. And I was like, what? And I was like, well, you eat it first because I'm not, I don't know. He did. And he's like, it's good. So I took a little bit and I put it in my mouth and it was like cotton candy. It was so sweet. It was so good. But I was like, who thought to eat? Like, who first thought to eat this? It's so gross looking. When you only have, like, spider webs to compare it to, you're like, that's not going to taste good. Yeah. Then it does. But, like, who was the first guy to try that? I'm really curious. That also what reminds person. me of, like, cow's milk. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, somebody milked a cow and then was like, let me drink that. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. It seems, I feel like that, like, isn't as much as a stretch because humans produce milk. So you're just like, it's another animal. Sure. Yeah, but you don't drink human but milk, like, as an adult you do person. You're doing your baby. Oh. You know? Like, it was yeah. an adult person that was like, let's Some drink this. Do, but. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> That's a whole other. Yeah. On the whole. That's an episode for another day. <laughs> Weird <Maybe>. fetishes. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about how weird humans are. It's, I shouldn't say a weird fetish. I don't want to stigmatize them. No, do don't, you. don't. Yeah, yeah, let's not. Let's not kink shame. Yeah, but I think a lot, like a lot of the time, probably most of those poisonous things or, I mean, cooking helped a lot, obviously, but probably just watched animals eat things and then we're like, okay, we'll give it a shot. 
Why not? Hopefully we won't die this winter, I guess. Kelsey happened to be spending some time with Chelsea Klinke the same day, week that we recorded this episode. It was so long ago, I don't remember anymore. And Chelsea is a graduate anthropology student at the University of Calgary and is very involved with a lot of horticulture gardening groups in Calgary. And so Kelsey thought it would be really interesting to talk to her about this topic. So this is their interview. Urban agriculture. So yeah, tell me a little bit about some of the groups that you're involved with in Calgary. Yeah, so I spend um, about once a week volunteering with Dirt Boys Urban Farming. And that is mostly run by a farmer named Michael and it, they employ a regenerative agriculture uh, technique or, or the principles of, they employ the principles of regenerative agriculture. Can you tell me a little bit about what regenerative agriculture is? Yeah, so it is a, a form of, of food production um, or livestock management where instead of degenerating the land, you are not only generating it, but you're regenerating it through a recycling of nutrients um, back into your soils, practicing techniques like uh, no to low till, uh, no to low tilling. <laughs> Um, so is that like the lasagna method that we would have learned out mm-hmm. it? Okay. Yeah. To so- give you some background. Chelsea, I came to volunteer out with Grow Calgary, I believe, and we learned how to lay cardboard on top of the native prairie grasses to maintain, I believe it was the root systems that had already been established in the native soils, and then uh, laying soil on top of the cardboard and then piercing the holes and allowing it to all sort of become part of that ecosystem that was already established. Is that sort of a similar idea then to this? regenerative agriculture <laughs> yeah so that would just be so lasagna bedding or sheet mulching is one of the many kind of applications or forms that are aligned with regenerative or agroecological um, principles so yep essentially if you want to know till for the benefit of keeping that um, that rhizome really strong and healthy with all of its earthworms and root systems already in place um, uh, you want to kind of kill your grasses on top in a very natural way, either by tarping them over or cutting them really low uh, for about a month before you, you want to, to lay down um, your compost. And then you lay cardboard down on the ground. If you're doing this a season before you plant, you don't need to poke the holes because it'll break down. But if you're going to plant in the same season, you'd want to poke holes in your, car- in your wet cardboard so that the earthworms can come up and the roots of the, of the crops can go down. And then just like a lasagna dish in your oven, you would want to layer on top of your cardboard. So first you'd put a really thick, good layer of um, mulch uh, to, to re- retain the, um, the water as well as to help break down the cardboard and add structure to your soil. And to add carbon in, you'd add compost on top of that. Um, and then if you're preparing your bed for the winter, that's when then you would top off with uh, an opaque tarp all of your garden space um, to prevent too much snow melt coming in and to, to trap the heat to, to make things uh, it all break down quicker. But if you're in the planting season, then that's when you just plant your, your crops right into the top layer of compost and soil and put more mulch around those roots so that you keep them nice and healthy. Oh, very awesome. Cool. And uh, you were also discussing the one 
one of the other groups you were working with permeate mm-hmm. and they were more interested in permaculture. Can you expand a little bit on what that entails? Yeah, absolutely. So permeate itself is a, a social ecological uh, organization and they work in frameworks for increasing the um, diversity in our ecological systems, so increasing biodiversity, but in also um, in our social spaces. So um, enhancing and promoting social inclusion, as well as an appreciation for all the, the diverse backgrounds that everyone in the city comes from. And so their model in permaculture is as well similar to agroecology, but you're working with the landscapes, you're mirroring the ecosystems that you have, you're bringing back in native species of plants and berry bushes and grasses, as well as to then uh, increase or bring back your wild uh, pollinator or native pollinators as well. Um, so your butterflies, your bees, um, different kinds of flies. And so in those models, again, uh, we're working with the Center for Spiritual Living on a hillside permaculture project, uh, wherein right now we're in the phase of, of getting that all prepared by digging swales. And swales are really key on a hillside because you're naturally kind of retaining your water and as opposed to all the water flowing straight down the hill and washing everything out the water goes down and it collects in this little valley um, and disperses and spreads the water into the different root systems and then as it goes down and cascades it disperses again oh cool prevents erosion how does that compare to the terracing method that you were talking about earlier yeah so when you're terracing you're really altering the land um and so you'd actually be it's pretty labor intensive you need to kind of measure out the different sections and then cut straight down into into your section and then cut straight out as well or dig in and kind of making that pie slice then move that land out um move that earth into more of a a retaining wall but in between your terraces it's also important to have your swales so that as the water goes down you're catching that water and bringing it around oh okay yeah cool Mm-hmm. And how do you see these different methods of agricultural production fitting into this urban landscape and then within those larger food systems and networks that are already established in our setting? And how does that relate to then your research working with um, lower income families in Calgary? Yeah, so I guess a couple of different ways I'll start with looking at how regenerative urban farming fits into the current landscape of the city. So everywhere as you're walking around the city, we really do have quite a number of green spaces. And when you look at those spaces closely, they're very manicured. You can tell they've been mowed and you know they're mostly there for aesthetics. So those are definitely spaces in parks or abandoned lots um, that you can begin developing in a more sustainable way. Um, adding in nutrients and adding in soil or doing raised beds, even if you have a space that's just concrete. So there are a lot of different smaller spaces that you can work in. And those are really great if you're also trying to develop more of a um, like a community, community-based hub where people working in three different office buildings can maintain a, you know, a garden space near to their, their office and on a lunch hour go down and eat together and do a little bit of weeding and thinning. I've also know some groups, one of them Grow All Capitals, who's working mostly with um, 
gardening on rooftops in more subsidized housing and training the residents of those buildings to grow their own food and uh, just, you know, exactly where they live. Um, and then also people's backyards. So this is something else that Dirt Boys Urban Farming is doing through regenerative agriculture, uh, partnering with homeowners all throughout the city to flip their backyard, uh, which they otherwise would have mowed or uh, done nothing with, into a production space. And so at least within that model, um, all of the produce that is grown is then um, distributed to YYC growers and distributors who are kind of a central hub for all these different spokes of farmers inside and outside of the city. And then they take that produce and one program they have are CSA harvest boxes. So then in your weekly market, in your community, you can go and purchase your vegetables um, at a reasonable price. Oh, from local growers. And I mm -hmm. love that idea. I had seen something on Facebook recently about how lawns are such a status symbol and just from an anthropological i guess perspective mm -hmm. how they've been established and really maintained as this status symbol mm -hmm. but how you know it's such a waste of valuable precious land and what the water we use for watering when we could be using this for agricultural purposes and actually growing to help uh fill this gap basically in food sovereignty and food access that we're currently experiencing so it's a great way for people to take initiative and change their own landscapes and mm -hmm. their own green spaces to something more sustainable and more long-term and especially yeah the idea actually so permaculture then is so that's the idea of returning to the plants that are more comfortable in that ecosystem and sort of looking at more local sources of production instead of shipping you know avocados in from mm -hmm. <laughs> very far south areas and the globalized and really industrialized mm -hmm. food production um, so how do you see the local as compared to the industrial global food markets? And what do you think the future of that's going towards? In, and how can we help, I guess, <laughs> make it more <laughs> sourced towards that local? What can like, a person do to help fill that model to create a more locally sourced and intensive food network that's self-reliant as compared to the larger global one that we're currently? Or do you think the global one's... Okay, what's your what's your what's your perspective? I don't know much about this. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So we call it the the contemporary global agrarian regime, and that's the one in which it's um, very it's conventional agriculture. It's also known as industrial agriculture. Um, very intensive product modes of production, highly mechanized, and that's where you're really seeing these large swaths of monoculture crops. When whether that's soy, corn wheat, um, canola here in Alberta, oats, and you have a whole entire, you know, huge space that you need different tractors and large scale irrigation systems to maintain. But what you also need to maintain are then uh, incoming pests and diseases and um, weaknesses in your crops. And so that's how you get into the cycle of dependency on GMO seeds and pesticides and herbicides and other chemical fertilizers and inputs. And it becomes this negative feedback loop where um, you have to put those inputs in because you have this monoculture, which is more susceptible to widespread diseases. And at the same time that you're doing that, you're really depleting your soils. And soil is really the key to the health of the plant. It's below the surface, but that's the most important thing to maintain is your soil health, because without it, you're not going to have good plant health. 
Um, so we're depleting our soils in these systems. We're emitting in, ex exponentially higher rates of atmospheric greenhouse gases um, when we're really depending on exporting and shipping uh, products grown on another side of the world that's adding a lot of um, at, uh, greenhouse gases from the trans long long distance transportation to get those fruits and vegetables here uh, and so local production is is not only important for reducing those emissions for transport but also providing people with job opportunities locally and doing it locally in a way that is more environmentally friendly um, when you're thinking about the myriad of ecological implications from large-scale agriculture, polluted waterways, oceanic dead zones, um, we're having higher rates of deglaciation all around the world from having a, a warmer, uh, warmer global temperatures. Um, that's leading to desertification, desiccation, uh, and that's changing the ways in which people and animals and other living organisms can subsist in this world. And that's also really impacting the, the forms and modes of production and who's producing what and at what scale. Um, and so bringing that autonomy and that decision-making within your own value chain back to you uh, in growing your own food does indeed give you a lot of sovereignty over what you're eating, um, but also a lot of dignity as well in being able to make your decisions and not being displaced within the the system uh that you can't keep up in okay and having so non-monocrop style agriculture then multiple species growing together seems to be really beneficial for soil health and longevity and sustainability of agricultural harvests and it seems i think we're going to talk about this with lulu and jill but um i think lulu's going to talk a little bit about the three sisters crop production mm -hmm. and how a lot of these indigenous knowledge systems were they already were ingrained and in inherently using these practices of um, diversifying their agricultural and harvesting um, for species that complemented each other so well and were able to provide those nutrients to grow and really establish as um, you know working off each other and benefiting together so maybe going back to some of these models and looking for yeah other species that will work especially in your local climate like what can we grow here in Alberta that is diversified and is sustainable and looking at other models I think that's a really interesting yeah that's gonna be really cool mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so that's called companion planting and so it's just like um you and you have a companion and you you benefit <laughs> off each other and it's a, a symbiotic relationship do you have um, any other examples of that you can think of maybe of your time like in um, Panama or like any of your other field experiences where you've maybe come across experiences mm. with companion plants? Oh, absolutely. When I was in Panama, I was in the Bocas del Toro region in the Caribbean side of the archipelago. And there it's a very uh, rainforested jungle climate. And so the community in which I lived and worked were primarily subsistence agriculture farmers. Um, and they were growing a lot of uh fruit trees, um, pifa, cocoa, banana, but plantain, um, but doing so right alongside their root crops as well, of uh, nyame, otoi, dashin, yamping, yuca, potatoes. Um, and then that was also supported by the kind of overhanging cacao trees. And so you go in and unlike, you know, a couple miles right to the north in Costa Rica, they have now huge monocrop banana plantations. Um, it 
originally looked so different. You would go into the jungle and you'd see 20 different species minimum just in your peripheral vision. Um, so yeah, we the knowledge has been there all along and we have uh, so many examples around the world of um, peoples practicing diversified agriculture um, for centuries and centuries, millennia. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to be looking back to that knowledge and and seeing how people have before always been have been practicing this and really the the industrial agricultural regime we know today is is quite contemporary yeah mm-hmm. even from an archaeological perspective mm-hmm. i could think when i was doing archaeology in belize we were excavating in an orange orchard but yeah it was all this big monocrop of just the perfectly manicured lines of oranges mm-hmm. orange groves and orange trees and you could see the house mound structures of this it was a maya site that um this orange grove was built upon but it was really interesting to sort of see that like layered history with this monocrop industrial style agriculture existing now in the modern world on top of it and then you sort of had this layered um, history of monocrop industrial agriculture because there was also a historic site of a banana plantation where you can see the barracks and the beer bottles from where the <laughs> men were like hanging out and drinking after you know working the banana fields all day and just sort of this layered but more recent still contemporary history, but it's still really ingrained within the modern um, culture and ideology of this monocrop and industrialization. So yeah, kind of getting a larger scale shifting or even in a place like Alberta where farming and large scale agriculture is so embedded within the society, how do you get people to start transitioning then to something new like you know diversified regenerative mm-hmm. agriculture and permaculture and having all of these um yeah multiple crops together it's it's going to be a challenge but i think it's going to be really cool and i feel like your passion and your enthusiasm for your research is going to go a long way in getting people really excited and on board with all these ideas and really connecting and creating these networks so that a lot of people can benefit from what's being can reap the benefits of your harvest yeah, and so exactly. what is all your puns where they're gonna sow all of the <laughs> it's gonna be time to turn up the turnip the beat <laughs> let us party <laughs> let us party wonderful great no, agriculture puns yeah. yes it, uh, you should see my my leadership statement for my vanier application the whole thing sabrina's like yes you definitely wrote this this is chelsea because the entire thing's like we're cultivating we're nourishing we're harvesting we're gathering you want full rhizome paper <laughs> full I think I threw in rhizome in there. I'm pretty sure. Oh, the interconnectedness of it all. <laughs> Beautiful, really. <laughs> but what we can do, so there are a lot of things that, that you can do to get more involved um, and to, to start learning about the importance of growing your food and how to actually do that. And one thing is to just go out into your community and start volunteering with all these different organizations. Um, if you're interested in permaculture, there's Verge Permaculture, the Permaculture Calgary Guild, Permeate, um, then there's Foodscape Calgary, Calgary Harvest, if you're interested in learning about, you know, picking fruit, there's Grow Calgary, uh, Dirt Boys Urban Farming, uh, Leaf and Lyre, there, there's just so many organizations out there in your community who are actively every day urban farming. And to direct, to take you more directly to the source, if you want to check out YYC growers and distributors, they are the hub of many other uh, agrarians in and around the city. So you can you know contact someone from there and they could probably put you in touch with more places. Um, but people are always looking for volunteers and help uh, attend your weekly 
harvest markets in your communities and start having conversations with the local farmers there and see if they ever need a hand what they're growing you can get involved with your community associations that have gardens and try to push community gardens away from the individualization uh traditional kind of unit of everyone having their own box and and encourage your your csa to, to uh you know support more community-based production models and we can include links to all of these places in the show notes so definitely no reason not to get involved you have all the resources and yeah what a great opportunity yeah i love playing in the dirt archaeologists and gardening it is really anthropology it is like the perfect combination partnership i really couldn't agree more cool thanks so much for chatting thank you see you out on the land (laughs) see you on the land good digging (laughs) Should we wrap this up? Yeah, that's Agriculture Baby. I hope you are enjoying, or did enjoy, since we're releasing this two months later, some local, fresh fall foods. Shop local or support the gardens in your city, if that's a thing. There's a lot of community gardens and Uh things like that that you can check out. So yeah, try some of the fall foods. This coming fall i guess tell us all about your cool fall things that you ate maybe you try a new recipe from a different culture that you hadn't tried before and you enjoy it and you can tell us about it by either emailing us or sending us a dm or tweeting at us and you can do that at pertaining to people.com is our website or send us an email at pertaining to people at gmail.com or follow us on instagram Appertaining to people and Twitter at P to People Pod. And thank you so much, Chelsea, for being on our show. We really appreciated it and all your amazing information that you shared with everybody. That was awesome. Oh, yes. Also, I should say we are doing episodes every two weeks now because we're in school and we busy and it's stressful. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so join us in another two weeks. Yay! Yay! <laughs>